I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. No, 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 no. That's, that, that's the wrong room. No, 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 no. Go back. Go back into your apartment. We're talking about room, not the room in this episode. Welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and in this episode, we are going to be a little somber, but there is some lightheartedness toward the end of the episode. So if you don't want to be bawling or have a um, bad taste in your mouth as we go, uh, we get a little uncomfortable talking about heavy topics, and so, you know, we... We have a little fun, let's say. We have a little fun. Anyways, we are talking today about the film Room. Not The Room, as my little jokey intro cold open did, but Room, a 2015 film by Lenny Abramson starring Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay, among others like Joan Allen, Sean Bridges, uh, Bridgers, Tom McCamus, and William H. Macy. Main characters are Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay. Um, Phenomenal performance by those two. Brie Larson ended up winning the Best Actress Oscar for her role as Joy slash Ma in this film. Uh, It is a tough film to watch, especially if you have kids. But um, I think uh, a phenomenal film to look at just how parents how far parents go will go for their children um even if the world thinks that they are not doing uh, it for the children or for you know selfish reasons we'll get into that a little bit in this movie the the movie was based on a book named room by emma donahue which is uh, came out only like five years before the movie came out is say um story told from the perspective of a five-year-old boy named jack who jacob tremblay plays and emma donahue has said that she wrote this story because of the five-year-old named felix uh who was a kid in the fritzel Case Now, if you haven't heard of the Fritzl case, this was a case of quite crazy proportion. So the um, the the Fritzl case happened in Austria um, and it came out in about 2008 um, and it turned out a woman named by the name of Elizabeth Fritzl um, had been held captive for 24 years by her father, Joseph, Joseph Fritzl, who had assaulted her and um, imprisoned her with many other people 
including seven children. Um, one died after birth, and people didn't know what was happening. And, and, and this happened in um, like the 70s and 80s, right? So we're talking about a 24-year-old period from, oh, excuse me, the 60s and the 70s, not the 70s and 80s. And in 2009, he pleaded guilty to all of the counts, even though he was a very, very old man um, by the time 2008 rolled around. And um, one of those children was Felix. And so Emma Donahue based the story on him and then it was turned that screenplay was adapted and it was turned into the movie starring Brie Larson and uh, Jacob Tremblay. Now the things that we're going to discuss in this episode are pretty tough topics. So this is my first content warning and I'm probably, I'm sure there will probably be more content warnings as we go through. These are, this is information associated with kidnapping, sexual abuse, child abuse, and um, just like the massive uh, mental health issues one would have even upon being freed from captivity, which is what happens in the film. Spoiler alert, it's not all about room. Now, in the movie, we spend most of our time with Jack and we experience the world from his perspective. And um, throughout several parts of the movie, we do hear him narrating as well. So this is kind of like a um, story told by Jack as Jack is five years old. Like it's, it's definitely from the mind of a five-year-old and it's, a film that is is difficult to stomach and if you're like me or my guest um we were saying on facebook that um it the film absolutely wrecked us and and my guest doesn't even have any children so it's just like the nature of the content of the film and and all of the the nastiness of of humans that it brings up but also the triumph of humans as well like the movie ends on a on a positive note which we'll discuss but i just wanted to throw that out there for my loyal listeners who may not have seen this movie maybe avoiding it for a particular set of reasons and those reasons being the content of the movie um some people have may have read the book and decided, wow, that that movie came out, and I'm definitely not going to watch that movie. So, um, just you know, be aware of that. Again, more content warnings. It was a really well directed film. It's a good story, but it is a heart wrenching story. So, I'm not going to drone on and on about the content. Of course, we'll talk about it as we get in. So, without further ado, let's jump into the discussion of the 2015 film room. My guest host today is Dr. Chelsea Robertson. Chelsea received her PhD in experimental psych from East Tennessee State University in 2021. She is currently an assistant professor of psychology at West Liberty University in Northern West Virginia, where she teaches a variety of courses, as one does, but primarily research methods, intro psych and developmental psychology. Her professional interests include trauma-informed teaching, 
and effective teaching practices in the post-secondary classroom. Chelsea, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I am super happy to have you on. We just saw each other as of this recording a week ago today. Uh, we saw we saw each other at the STP, the Society for the Teaching of Psychology's annual conference on teaching, which is referred to as ACT or ACT. I think for some folks, they like calling it ACT. Mm. I do not. I do not like calling it <laughs> ACT, but uh, it's ACT to me, STP, ACT. So we just saw each other in Portland and you ask, why didn't you record it in Portland, man? And I didn't have any microphones. So maybe next STP, next October, I can do an in-person recording of some description, but we'll see. We'll see. The last time we did it, uh, it with Jason at AP Reading, it wasn't. It wasn't that. <laughs> it wasn't that great. Not that Jason's not to... great. Not that Jason's not great. It was the recording situation that wasn't great. I need to be clear on that one, lest he never appears on the show again. Okay, <laughs> so I'm happy to have you on, Chelsea. Good to see you again a week later. I love how you don't have to give a last name with Jason. We just all kind of know who we're referring to at this point. <laughs> He's been on <laughs> the second most number of times. So faithful listeners will will know who I am talking about when I say Jason. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Those five people that listened to our chat uh, at the AP reading about uh uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, those five people that listen to that one. They'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so before we jump into discussing this pretty difficult, hardcore film, uh, and not hardcore in the sense that people think of hardcore, but like, oh my god, heart-wrenching, I just wanted to get your thoughts like I do with uh, most of my uh, guest hosts. What are your thoughts on film in general? And then if you do use film in your teaching, why this particular medium in your pedagogy? So admittedly, um, I'm still very much a, a very brand new professor. I'm going yeah. into, um, I'm actually in my third year of teaching Congratulations, right now. I love it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I am working on uh, kind of expanding my uh, toolbox in terms of the materials that I use in my uh, assignments, in classrooms. Um, I am really interested in kind of venturing into using films to teach just mm -hmm. because I've been um, I've actually been a fan of your podcast for many years. Oh, and so thank you. You might actually remember me being a kind of a totally normal person back totally when normal. I met you um, back in Pittsburgh. Yes. yes and yes, yes. Uh, the Jason, who is now apparently on the same level of uh, fame as Madonna. Ah, um, yes, or Prince, yeah. <laughs> or Prince, of course, um, when he introduced us and I was like, oh my God, that is Alex Wan. I've listened to his podcast before. Um, so I've been interested in using film and um, so I've not quite used it yet, but okay. I am slowly becoming interested in the idea. I'm yeah. slowly going into that territory. Like I am definitely 
looking towards the near future of using film in some capacity. So kind of working on this podcast with you, I'm kind of like, okay, this may not be like the number one film that I choose just (laughs) as we're going to get into. Yeah. Um, but I can I can definitely see this as being an option for me, certainly. Okay. So then that leads me back to the broad question is, so since you've listened to the show before and now that you're on it, um, what about film and movies uh, makes it a, a teaching tool that you want to use in your class, says? Well, first, I think you would be very hard pressed to find a single film that couldn't be applied to psychology in some way. Sure. Um, I I'm kind of quickly going through my mind of all of the films I've seen just in the past couple of years. And I'm coming up empty in terms of ones that I can't find one that doesn't immediately come to mind as, oh, well, I could bring this up in this class or in that class or some sort of assignment that I could I could tie it to. You might have to squint for some of them sure, to yeah, make it yeah. readily applicable for some students, but that's just kind of the magic of our field in general, but it's mm-hmm. also the magic of film. Yeah. Um and then too, um students are already going to be interested in film to begin with, and so it's kind of this natural gateway between You know, we want our students to be interested in psychology and naturally they probably will be because Mm -hmm. of how applicable our field is. But then, too, we have this natural medium to use. And so um, it's just kind of this natural way for us to bring students even in closer to the awesomeness of psychology. I certainly agree with that. And that's one of my central points when I give this talk about how you know using movies or and other other forms of digital picture media like tv shows as well uh into the classroom to broaden students horizons uh, although i will say a recent guest uh did mention that uh, I, I don't know if we're we're possibly losing our, our student audience um, because of films requiring a certain level of attention mm-hmm. <laughs> for a given num- number of minutes. Uh, 80 to <laughs> 80 plus, we'll say. Uh, I would. Oh, man. Killers of the Flower Moon are, is coming out um, soon as of this recording. It's probably already out by the time this this podcast episode is published and that movie's three and a half hours folks and i don't know if our students would want to sit through that but it's a like it's supposed to be really good adaptation of what happened in oklahoma uh to the osage people and the oil that they found uh in oklahoma so i'm really excited for that but I don't know if students would be. So we kind of, we might have to pivot is what I'm saying. We might have to pivot. I will never not use movies in my classes. And even if they are kicking and screaming. Why is it so long, <laughs> Dr. Swan? It's so long. <laughs> it's not a minute. 
Okay, so let's move on to our chat for today, which is about the film Room. Just Room. Not to be confused with the cult classic The Room, which is Tommy Wiseau's amazing, god-awful film, right? Have you seen The Room, Chelsea? No, but I have heard plenty of it, okay. and so I feel like I have already seen The Room. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's just called Room, and it came out in 2015. So before we jump into this, the site concepts that we we spotted while watching this movie, um, Chelsea, why don't uh, you explain to the listeners where you came to this uh, choice? I know you offered a couple of suggestions, and I was like, you know what? I haven't seen Room. Let's do Room. So what was your thinking? Um, so really, there were two reasons why I came to this conclusion. First, um, this is just a, a really wonderfully made film. That was kind of number one on my list. Yeah. Number two was the bigger reason. I think when you have a film about trauma, mm -hmm. it is very tempting for you to make the film entirely about trauma. Like, let's right. just dump in as much horrible stuff that we can. Yeah. And of course, this film is full of terrible stuff. Yeah, like, right, right, you're right. not watching this film to feel good. Um, I know you and I yesterday on Facebook, we were kind of joking like, this was awful. Like, I know this is um, preparing to discuss this film. This wasn't the first time that I'd seen it. Right. And I even it was the had first to time take. I had seen it. I had to take breaks mm -hmm. watching it. And like, I knew what was coming, like with every scene. Um, and so this film is full of some of the worst things that humans can experience, like no doubt. Right. But. One of the things that I really admire about the film is that it doesn't just swing the way of, okay, we're just going to focus entirely on all of these really terrible things mm -hmm. that happen to people. But it's also not just full of this really ridiculous inspiration of, oh, but once you are out of these really terrible situations, look at how wonderful life is. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, once... You're out of trauma. Everything's okay. Um, you should be happy. Like it really right. yeah. shows this really, um, it, it shows the complexity of what dealing with trauma, especially long-term, very complex trauma can look like. Right. Um, it shows the difference between a child growing up in a traumatic situation versus an adult mm -hmm. who knows what life before that traumatic situation looks like. It just, it shows a very accurate portrayal, I think. And it doesn't paint it one way or another. It's not entirely bleak. It's not entirely hopeful and like a, a, a toxic positivity. It's not a toxic negativity. It's very much, um, it's right there, right in the middle. And I kind of like that. Right. It, it feels it feels human. It feels like a human story. And um, as you mentioned, we were we were talking about it on Facebook and, and a lot of other people jumped in and said that they read the book and they said the book was phenomenal. Um, and some said that they watched the movie and then others were like, I read the book and I think that was enough. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it goes to show that um, if the book was wonderful and the adaptation from the book to the movie 
works, then I think you have a good film on your hands. Uh, and and that is what makes the experience of the trauma no less difficult, of course, as, as a viewer. But you also don't feel the nihilistic bleakness of these of these characters' lives. Like at like the movie ends on a very high note, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Yeah. And so while it was difficult to watch and and I'll just repeat my 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 content warning here is that we're gonna be talking about some some pretty gnarly things as we reference events in the film. I'm gonna start with the summary of course, but you know, we've got Lovely Jack, the child in the film, played by Jacob Tremblay, um, who made uh, a wonderful uh, little like little dude at the Oscars in February of 2016 when Brie Larson won the um, Oscar for Best Actress. Uh, he was he was amazing <laughs> on the red carpet and and hanging out with all of these old actors and stuff. And so you see that that spark from that kid and I think that makes the movie worthwhile. So I'm not going to um go into too many details when I do this summary just to give the listener a little bit of a lay of the land if not if you have not read the book, not seen the film and kind of want to go into the movie with a little bit of a handhold. Uh, would you say would you, would you say a handhold? Is a good way to put it, Chelsea? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So the movie is about uh, two characters, one named Ma, although we find out her name is Joy later in the film. And she is the mother to Jack. And the film starts with him turning five years old and they live in a room. The room is a shed in some guy's backyard. And we come to learn throughout the movie that Ma was kidnapped and essentially forced to be a um, sex partner. One of those sexual encounters with her captor produced Jack five years prior. Five years and nine months, I suppose, prior. Do you remember how? Do you remember how Alice wasn't always in Wonderland? She fell down, 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 deep in a hole. Right, well, I wasn't always in room. I'm like Alice. I was a little girl named Joy. Nah. And I lived in a house with my mom and my dad. You would call them grandma and grandpa. What house? A house. It was in the world. And there was a backyard, and we had a hammock. We would swing in the hammock, and we would eat ice cream. A TV house? No, Jack, a real house, not TV. Are you even listening to me? When I was a little older, when I was 17, I was walking home from school. Where was I? You were still up in heaven, but there was a guy. He pretended that his dog was sick. What guy? Old Nick. We call him Old Nick. I don't know what his real name is. But he pretended his dog was sick. What's the dog's name? Jack, there wasn't a dog. He was trying to trick me, okay? There wasn't a dog. Old Nick stole me. I want a different story. No, this is the story that you get. He put me in his garden shed. Here, room is the shed. The first part of the movie, I would say about the first hour, is them in their room, which they refer to as just room. No article, 
No definite article. Uh, so it's just room. And they don't have a lot of definite articles for a lot of things in the in the room. Uh, they have skylight. They have closet or wardrobe. I should, I'm sorry. They have wardrobe. Uh, they're from England, apparently. Um, they have wardrobe and a few other things here and there that are slipping my mind and write them all down. But the definite article is 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 um, lost. They also have TV. Uh, which provides them with some form of entertainment beyond books. Uh, their captor, old, referred to as Old Nick, we don't actually know his real name uh, because uh, Ma is very protective of Jack, knowing that. And much of the film is seen from his perspective, which I, I also very much enjoy. The director, Lenny Abram, uh, Abramson, uh, did a phenomenal job capturing uh, various perspectives with the camera to be Jack is, is wonderful filmmaking. And so the first half of the movie is them in this room and their lives and all of the stuff that happens. Old Nick comes by every evening and he, he um, gives supplies, but then he also gets sex. And then later, probably the second half of the movie will say, they try to hatch a uh, an escape plan. The, their first go at it doesn't work. I'm not going to go into the details on this because we can either do that with the uh, psych segments uh, or you can we can just leave it to you to read or to watch. So their first plan doesn't work, but then their second plan works, except with some hitches, but eventually works. Joy slash Ma is eventually freed. They are taken to the hospital. Uh, old Nick is arrested and all of this. We meet Joy's parents. His, her mother, grandma, is played by um, Joan Allen, which was a gr she was phenomenal in this role as well. Uh, it, her parents are divorced, but we meet his mother, played by or his mother, his father, cheapers, father, William H. Macy. And then um, I what I what I assume, although it's not stated, what I assume is uh, grandma's new fling which was actually a family friend leo as um her her new i guess live-in partner we'll, we'll we'll just say partner mm -hmm. uh and so the second half of the film explores their recovery jack and ma's recovery so that's the synopsis that i'm gonna give without too many details and of course we're gonna go into the details in our two set two segments so what I'm thinking, Chelsea, is we've got two things that I think you can help explain to our listeners here. The first segment, I think, is just looking at this from a child development lens, right? Because mm -hmm. you have experience in child development and you teach developmental psychology. So we'll do that and we'll talk about how Jack grows through five years old. In only room. Mm -hmm. He spends the first five years of his life only in this, I don't know, eight by eight room. And then after our break, we'll talk about the trauma part. Okay, Chelsea, I've got something for you here. I've got a question for you. What kind of child development milestones did you spot in this movie 
with respect to Jack? Like, what are the, some of the things that we get clued into as the audience about his development for through his first five years? So the first thing that comes to mind is um, I'm immediately drawn to his cognitive development. Mm-hmm. Um, he is very much aware of certain things in the world around him. Like he is, he's a very bright kid for what is going on in room. Mm -hmm. Um, Ma has done a very great job of doing what she can to support his development in room. We see her reading to him. Um, We see his drawings and coloring on the wall. We see him um, engaging in um, track. I think that she has almost like a routine set up for him. Like he does track um, running from one wall to the next. I love that scene where she's almost like messing with him. Yeah. I said that wall. Oh, wait, no, I said that wall. (laughs) Yeah. I love that scene. Um, But cognitively... We as the audience know he only can cognitively be aware of what has of what he's been exposed to in room. He believes that what he sees on TV is real, but only in the extent of what he actually can view on TV. Um, he cannot comprehend that there's a life outside of the however many walls that room has um four he it's four that's what yeah i believe it's four okay it's four it's not a very fancy shack i guess Mm -mm. um we even see things in terms of his language development um there's a, a couple of little quirks in his language that happen. We can kind of maybe attribute that to maybe Ma's exposure. Like he's only been exposed to Ma's language. He's not grown up around other children. He's only been exposed to Ma's language. Um, We know that he, I keep on going back to the whole TV thing. Mm -hmm. Um, He really believes in this whole idea of magic. Which, yeah. of course, when we're thinking about a five-year-old kid, like that's very normal development. Right. Like we have to keep in mind that he's still a very little kid. Um, we're not going to expect him to have the same cognitive abilities as, you know, a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old. Right. Um, he really doesn't understand anything about the outside world, but can we really blame him at that point? No. He's only known room. Right. He's only known room. And um, just to give a little bit more background um, to to what I said in the introduction, which was this is based on the Fritzel case, which was a um, 2008 uh, like true crime situation uh, in Austria where uh, a woman was held for 24 years and um, birthed seven children, one of those being a little boy named Felix. And Felix is what caught the attention of the writer of the book, who uh, Emma Douglas, uh, excuse me, Emma Donahue, um, which, which got a bunch of um, accolades and everything like that. Uh, but she was most, most impressed by five-year-old Felix from this case. And and this isn't, this is like found out in 2008, 
right? This is a, a woman who was held captive for 24 years in up to, you know, recent history, we'll say. And, you know, you've got this little boy, Felix, and I'm, I'm wondering what, like, because we, we can compare this to some other cases that have been in the literature. So the children that were recently found chained up in a basement. Hey, I don't know the details of this one. That's the only thing that stands out to me right now. Um, children. Now there wasn't any adults uh, chained up in the, in the basement. It was only the, it was the parents chaining up the children. I think it may be in Pennsylvania. I don't know. Um, I can't remember that. I, I, I was struggling to get those details. Uh, to be able to, like, search for it. Uh, and then we have, you know, a situation like uh, Jeannie, for example, mm-hmm. the the child who never learned how to how to speak and then passed that critical period. And, and, and it was very difficult for her to to speak even as a growing child into an adult. Right. So we have mm-hmm. some of these instances and and. I'm going to pause uh, here or, 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 um, mention that um, Ma in this story, which is, you know, a fictionalized story of possibly true events or like pos- uh, true ideas. Right. Um, Ma um, gets some flack later in the movie about whether or not, you know, raising Jack in the ro- in, in room was the best thing for him. And I got to say. She did a phenomenal job. She did a phenomenal job. And that interviewer was uh, a piece of shit. Um, uh, uh, We swear rarely on this show, but I feel very strongly about the questions that were asked of this character and the the consequences that those questions had. And I got to say, even you, you might disagree about, you know, her raising a kid inside of a room an eight by eight shell and never seeing anything, but he now this is the, the thing where it's hard to separate the fact of the movie, the internal logic and consistency of the movie. And then Jacob Tremblay as a real person who did not get raised in a room. Right. So mm-hmm. Jacob Tremblay is trying to be this character. I'm sure he got a ton of direction on like, this is how you should be acting right now. This is how, this is what you would be saying in, in, in these circumstances, but it's still hard to separate Jacob Tremblay out of that situation as some, somebody who does know. Right. And so one of the things for me, as I was watching this, and this is both a blessing and a curse when I watch movies now, especially when I watch movies specifically for the show is that, how much of the cognitive development that we see in Jack the character would actually be would actually be real life in that situation. Yes. And of course, wildly unethical to actually do anything <laughs> about that. <laughs> yes. And so it's always going to be an open question until somebody has the exact specific circumstances to the movie. And so I'm just I, I'm I'm just I, every time I, I saw him do something that was so amazing, I was like, Props to Ma, man. Props to Ma. She taught him how to read, and he was reading all by himself at five years old. And he was reading some kind of difficult text. I mean, he was reading Alice in Wonderland. I mean, it wasn't your run-of-the-mill standard stuff that you would typically see a five-year-old kid reading. I mean, C-spot. C-spot run. 
Yeah. Right. It wasn't like the Canterbury Tales or anything, but like, I mean, it was some pretty challenging stuff. Like this kid, he was bright. Yeah. Like, and you can, you can see that throughout the film. And, you know, the routine and everything, solid mm -hmm. parenting, solid parenting, telling him, um, you know, about his circumstances in a way that he would understand. But then also one of the one of the ways that um, she connected with him before he turned five was telling lies, telling white lies about. Um, their circumstances and why yes. their circumstances were the way they were. And then when he turned five and she saw how precocious he was and how outgoing and bright he was, she was like, all right, this is our only chance for you to have a semi-decent life. I got to tell you the truth. And she she tells him the truth and he gets mad at her. And I think he gets mad at her in a very developmentally appropriate way. Having mm -hmm. two, having had two children who have been five, developmentally appropriate anger at him, yeah. at, at her just pulling the, the wool from his eyes. Yeah, he's like, you've told me one thing all my life, and now you're suddenly changing the script on me. That is not cool, Ma. And he's he's pretty upset about the whole thing, but then... Ma's whole reasoning is I'm seeing a shot here and I know you're going to be really mad at me. And she's like, I know, Jack, I know, I know that I've told you one thing and I know that I've been telling you lies all your life, but I, this is our shot here. Mm -hmm. um, I keep on thinking back to the, the scene when it's kind of showing the flashbacks of their routine about how um, they got to practice the screaming to the aliens. Like that was a developmentally appropriate way of, you know, regularly maybe trying to get someone to hear them. Right. But she can't say, oh, hey, we're actually captive in here. It's a way to get Jack to help her maybe get some help mm -hmm. in a developmentally appropriate way. But now she's trying to get him on board and yeah, she's doing it in a in a really good way. Like she understands how to get him on board. So I'm just again, like we have to understand it's fiction and like these are actors here, but like beyond all of that, like the developmentally appropriateness of how Ma interacts with Jack at every single stage here, even when their interactions are not entirely like fluid like when they are arguing when things are not going well between them it is still very accurate and i still just want to say good job mom like you're doing the best that you can yeah and even when they get out of their crappy situation to put it mildly she she obviously feels guilty ma feels guilty um ma struggles with the repercussions of her actions um not only in raising jack by herself in a room um but also what happens to her family what happens to all of her friends and she feels guilty and she feels i would say a lot of shame especially for the jack stuff guilty for the parent stuff uh and and doesn't get any kind of 
just hunky doryness back from everyone in her life. I think Leo's the only one who really just is like, you know what, I'm not I'm not gonna get involved. I'm just gonna hang out with Jack. But she feels that guilt because she's like, I've been gone for seven years. You guys got divorced. Her dad won't even look at Jack um, Mm -hmm. in one scene. And she's like, you guys can't give me just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, And I think that's very true to life, by the way. Everyone's got their own stuff. And uh, most people aren't just going to give up that stuff for the sake of somebody else's bigger stuff. If that makes sense. He needs to play with something real. I'm worried about him being on the phone. He's doing fine. Well, I don't give him my phone, so I'd appreciate it if you didn't give him yours. Okay, well, great. I just want him to connect with something. Joy. Joy. He's really doing fine. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm supposed to be happy. You just need to rest, okay? No, I don't. I don't need to rest. That is not what the doctor said. You don't know what he said because it was a confidential conversation and you don't know what he said. All right, all right. right. You're impossible to talk to right now. Well, sorry. No, no, you're not sorry. Yeah, I'm not sorry. You have no idea what's going on in my head. Yeah, well, try me. I have asked you. And then what? Then every time you look at me, that's all that you see? When I look at you, Joy, I will see my daughter. You don't need me. You've been doing just fine without me. How can you say that, huh? Do you think that you were the only one whose life was destroyed? Actually, that's exactly what I think. Yeah, how would you feel if somebody took Jack away from you? Oh, shut up! Go easy. Look at him! You should be thinking about him. Don't you tell me how to look after my son. I'm sorry that I'm not nice anymore. You know what, maybe if your voice saying be nice hadn't been in my head, then maybe I wouldn't have helped the guy with the sick dog. Yeah, where she's talking to her mom and she's like, or her, her mother, like the grandma is saying, do you think that you're the only one who went through things? Mm -hmm. And joy slash ma she's like yeah (laughs) she's like you kind of expect her to be like do you think that what i went through was nothing like i kind of wanted her to like almost explode on grandma to be like yeah i know that you lost a daughter but do you know what i went through like yeah it it it's like you You want to i think you got to have a life yeah, she got to have a life. I know it was a, not a very good life. I we're, we're kind of bleeding into trauma here, but this is the last thing that I will say about that. It's like, you got to have me in a hospital. I'd have Jack in my room as a captive. I didn't get to go to the hospital. I had to have old Nick. Yeah, I'd have old Nick helping me deliver a baby that I didn't want him to have. Okay, so let's get back to some of the development things. So... Again, Jack um, is has developmentally appropriate uh, anger and joy and fascination, which I think is amazing considering that his entire life up till then was just a room. Now you can argue that maybe like the first year kind of doesn't really count because, you know, babies and infants are pretty easily uh, newborns 
sleep a lot. Infants are easily distracted. Um, and then once you get to toddler stage, then you can kind of start ramping stuff up and, you know, uh, making things work a little bit more for you. But even then, oh, man, Joy was by herself. Okay, going into trauma still a little too much. All right. <laughs> so when he turns five at the beginning of the movie, he gets upset that he doesn't have any candles. And, of course, old Nick doesn't allow his captive to have fire. Um, which I think is kind of interesting because she probably could have taken that toaster and held it up to that um, like cork, uh, the, the, the sound dampening stuff and just like kind of gently started chipping it away. Like there were a lot of anyways, there are a lot of things she could have done without fire. Although one thing that you could have also done with that toaster is light lit, lit candles. I'm just saying like that stuff. I don't know if you've ever touched a toaster, but that stuff gets hot. True. Yeah. Anyways, this is a little inconsistency that I that I noticed. But anyhow, she was captive and didn't know what old Nick would do to her. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, she could have gotten murdered and then old Nick would have just abducted another teenager. Um, although the backstory in the book, which isn't really mentioned in the movie, is that um, his house is getting foreclosed on. So interesting. He's struggling to because he didn't have a job. So they have an argument about jobs mm -hmm. and money in the movie. But yeah, he's um he's getting he's losing the house. So of course he's losing. If he loses the house, then he loses room. Then he loses room. Yeah, and so I think that's so we don't really get the reason why it's now or or, or never. Um for ma right. in this particular like escape plan but it, it is because like he loses power uh or he loses his job he loses power right you kind of think oh he's punishing them for turning off for, for like you know doing stuff um in the room that they shouldn't be doing but it turns out that no he's just he can't pay his bills which I think is is quite interesting backstory. Not necess not necessary for the emotional oomph of the movie, but I just thought that was an interesting tidbit from the book that did not make it into the movie. The impetus as to why they um they have to escape when they do. So were there any other kinds of developmental things that you see maybe um after they get out of room? Something that I really liked in the movie was when Jack escapes, when he is out in the real world for the first time and he is in the back of old Nick's truck and he has gotten out of the rug and he sees the sky for the first time. He has seen the sky throughout his life through skylight, mm -hmm. but he has never seen the sky purely before and it's just i think this is one of my most favorite scenes in the movie he just has this look of like amazement mm -hmm. on his face just i mean props to uh, props to jacob tremblay for 
how he portrayed this look of amazement being such a young actor. Um, you just, you know that he's on a mission, but he takes a couple of seconds just to look up at the sky and he's just, he's in pure awe. He's like, oh my goodness, like there is a world out here. And then he's almost like, okay, I've I've got to do what Ma told me to do. Like yeah. he got out of the rug. He's got to wait until the, the truck stops. He's got to get out of the truck. He's got to find someone to get help. And the fact that he's so young and he's able to keep everything in mind, he's able to stay calm enough mm-hmm. to do this. I don't think I could do this. And I'm much older. <laughs> right? I'm much older than Jack. And I've like been in the outside world. And so I'm, again, just amazed at how cognitively and social, like socially, emotionally, like um, just mature Jack right. is throughout mm-hmm. the whole film. But that scene in particular, like the music that's playing in the background, it is just, it's a very powerful scene. I it love re- it. It really is. And I will add to that um, bit is that he is able to remember how many stops and turns in that in that yes. particular sequence. And it's just like, not only was he amazed at seeing the sky for real for the first time, that's one, right? Th- that overwhelming awe um, is what I will say. Uh, and then he has to remember the plan itself once he's been unfurled, okay? He, he And he's got a, a, a note in his hand and his pocket that he needs to get to a stranger. And then three, able to recall when prompted by a police officer where he was found in relation to where he started. That is amazing. I don't know if my, I, I honestly don't know if my kids could do that. No, it was very amazing. Like the police officer, like, the I know that the officer who was kind of driving, he was like, no, I think that the kid just needs to sleep. Like he's obviously he he needs to just rest like he's not going to be able to tell you anything. But she's like, no, he just just give him a minute. He's trying to remember it. And she's slowly just yanking this information out of him. And he's talking in a he's talking kind of like in child speak mm-hmm. almost. It's like you've, unless you've been around children that small, you probably would have just been like, Oh, he's just, we're never going to figure out what he's saying. But yeah. then it, you see it click on her face. Like I know exactly where he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, Oh, thank goodness. Like you, you kind of feel this deep sense of relief. Like, okay, Jack finally remembers or like Jack has finally been able to communicate where Ma is. Mm-hmm. And it it's just it's amazing how he's able to communi- communicate and how she's able to understand what he's trying to communicate. Yeah, that's it, it, it is a great sequence of events. And I think the final thing that you spotted when uh, t- to do with his his development is. What's the future like for his development, right? And so um, he was raised inside of a room. The only light was either artificial or from skylight, right? Mm -hmm. And so what did they have to do to assist him with adjusting to this new, new world? 
yeah. So at the hospital, the doctor just keeps on taking stuff out of his white coat pockets. They're like, here's some sunglasses for both of you. Um, they give Jack a mask. Um, they give him, um, they tell him like, he's not used to germs. Um, yeah. Jack, whenever he goes outside, he's always covering his ears. And you just think about all of the sensory stuff that he's never been around before. Um, he's going to have to wear sunscreen because I mean, he had skylight, but how much UV exposure did he actually have? Probably not a whole lot. Yeah. And so it's not even just like the social aspect of what he missed growing up in room. It's quite literally the physical aspect, the germs, the sound exposure, the light exposure, um, everything else that we kind of take for granted in mm -hmm. a lot of ways too. Yeah, it reminds me of the study that I tell my sensory sensory. <laughs> it reminds me of the study that I tell my sensation and perception students when we are are talking about um, vision development and how these researchers uh, took some cats and they raised them in cylinders with mirrors at the top and the bottom. And they either had horizontal lines or vertical line gradients, so in between black and white. Uh, and, and that's how they were reared, right? So as kittens placed into these um, cylinders that are endless, either endless vertical lines or endless horizontal lines because of the mirrors and what that did to their vision and whether or not they could see the opposite orientation of lines when tested as they grew older and it's just like oh my gosh jack probably has never had his pupils so constricted ever unless he was staring directly at a light a, a light source in a dark room right he, his pupils probably were always big because mm -hmm. of how dim and stuff that was and so to go outside and have his physiology never adapted to being in actual sunlight is just wild to me. And he, he takes it all in stride, too. I think that is uh, something to note uh, as we end this segment is that for much of the movie, except for his, out, his anger outbursts, he takes a lot of it in stride. And kudos to this fictional boy for the ability to take everything in stride, because I don't know if I could do that. Uh, you've, you've mentioned that, that um, you probably wouldn't have been able to find your way back uh, or tell the police that's what they need to do. Um, I don't <laughs> I've met my kids. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Although, as we talk about in uh, as we're going to talk about in our, in our next segment, trauma really does change the way that our brains develop. And I'll end with this as far as development goes. The doctor says a very important line um, in the movie to Ma when they're in the hospital. And she said, it's really good that you got him out while his brain is still plastic. Um, and that is incredibly important for the second half of the movie as we see him adjust 
to the outside. So we will take a quick break uh, and we will talk more room. Stay tuned for that trauma segment. Are you a big fan of the Cinema Psych podcast? A connoisseur of the compelling stories and intriguing insights that we have on this show? Well, show your love in style with our premium podcast merchandise. Yeah, that's right. I've updated the podcast store from ultra comfy hoodies, perfect for cozy podcast binges, to sleek coffee mugs that add a dash of personality to your morning routine. Our merchandise store has it all. I've added so many new products and it's designed to withstand countless listening marathons. There are a lot of episodes. I think you'll love them, but wait, there is more. Every week there is a new promotion, turning up the volume on value. So keep an eye out for our exciting special promotions. Every other week, 15% off in between. Sometimes there's a special 25% off day. And then sometimes there's free shipping. It's the perfect way to score your Cinema Psych podcast merch for less. I'm excited to have expanded the merchandise offerings, but I'm really excited to say that new designs are coming up. And you can put these designs on all of the merchandise. So keep an eye out for new arrivals in the design section. So don't just listen, wear it, flaunt it, live it. Visit our merchandise store at cinemapsychpod.swanpsych.com slash store to shop your love for the Cinema Psych Podcast today. Remember, every purchase goes directly to supporting this show. And of course, thanks for listening to this show. I love doing it. Now let's get back into it. And we are back with Dr. Chelsea Robertson talking Room, 2015 film starring Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay as a mother and son who escape a really bad time with a um, kidnapper-turned-sexual-predator-turned-hopefully-defendant-and-prisoner, um, um, right? Uh, we don't know his fate at the end of the movie, but uh, we're hoping there's no plea deal, as uh, Joy's or Ma says. Uh, as uh, Joy's father says, excuse me. Wow, no please, no please. That's we don't want any please. Is what Philium H. Muffman says. Um, if you're not aware, that's his uh, portmanteau with um his wife, Felicity Huffman, Philium H. Muffman. Anyways, <laughs> let's talk trauma. I am uncomfortable, and so there there are a lot of jokes, and that so that's. Where you got that one from is because the trauma in this movie is very, very difficult to um, not only watch, but read, explore, write about, all of it. Which is why I'm not a trauma researcher. But we have one with us. Chelsea, 
please take us through. I think what we had said was that we're going to do Jack's trauma first, and then we'll talk about Joy's, which I think is the more visceral, um, because most people watching this movie are going to be adults, and we relate to that experience in some ways as being the same age. Um, So what kinds of impacts does this experience have on Jack? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I think that Jack has a really, he has a really unique situation going on. I think that that's a, a really big understatement if if we have to put it in a in a very simple summary. Mainly because Jack doesn't have anything to compare life outside of room to. Right. Um, he grew up in room. And so he doesn't know that growing up in room is odd or that it is traumatic. Like mm-hmm. us as the viewer, we're like, oh my God, like this is terrible. Like this is the very definition of child abuse. Right. Like this is the very definition of what you should not be doing to a child. Mm-hmm. But Jack, like he's growing up and we see him right off the bat, he's very happy. And it's almost like this very stark contrast between we're almost uncomfortable with the fact that he's this normal kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like we were talking about in the previous segment, like we see him doing all of these normal kid things, like uh, for goodness sake, like he has a birthday party. for Yeah, and, and a cake. And a cake. Like he's celebrating with his mom his his birthday at the very start of the film. Um but we do have to understand that this is trauma, like it, uh, in terms of um, how trauma researchers would define this. Mm-hmm. Um, something that we also brought up in the previous segment uh, towards the end of the segment was when Jack and Ma are in the hospital, the doctor brings up that very important quote. Um, the most important thing you did was get him out while he's still plastic. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, there we go. Exactly. Um, and I love how Jack takes that quote very literally. He kind of leans over to Ma and he's like very concerned. He's like, but I'm not plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I love it too. <laughs> he responds in a way that is very normal for a, a fi- like a, a five-year-old kid to respond. Indeed. Um, but us as psychologists, we know that um, we're not talking about like the material plastic. We're talking about in terms of neuroplasticity and we're talking about the brain's ability to um, basically rebound and recover from uh, an experience such as this, such as the one that Jack is growing up in. Mm-hmm. In terms of Jack's experience of growing up in room, we know that, and this is essentially what the doctor was talking about because he got out when he did his outlook is very good Mm -hmm. we also know that the fact that he had ma who was obviously a very good mother despite what that jerk of an interviewer was insinuating Uh um during that train wreck of an interview right um we know that he's going to have a rough road. We know that any sort of exposure to early trauma is going to be any, any exposure is going to be bad. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but we know that the fact that Jack is very young and the fact that he is plastic, we know that his brain still has a lot of, of developing left to do. Mm-hmm. He's going to be okay. Like we are left with very good hope that he's going to, he's still going to have a rough road, but it's, it's going to be okay for Jack. And so that's kind of the, the synopsis of what we're working on with Jack. Uh, one thing I wanted to note is is in the memory literature, it's um, a common refrain to see uh, the idea that we tend to not remember most of the things that happened to us, you know, before the age of four or five, because a lot of that stuff gets pruned uh, in the development and we don't need those memories anymore. And so the brain is like, ah, that connection's worthless now. Like I don't need to worry about this, that, or the other thing because that's not, that's not going to impact my survival anymore. Um, but we also know that trauma does change the way that at traumatic experiences, I should say, like, you know, at this point, um, big T trauma rather than little T traumas here and there, right? So he's got a big T trauma, but as you say, like he seems rather well adjusted mm-hmm. to his life in that specific place. So how much of his uh, pruning is going to be affected by what is then later told to him as trauma and how much of that is then going to uh, or how much has that impacted his brain development later down the road. Right. So it's sort of an open question about how much he will actually remember from his time in room and will it will be most likely contingent on um, people telling him what happened and exploring like various memories from other people and of course the only other person that's really going to be able to tell him what actually happened in room is ma um and so we may not see explicit uh you know let's say jack at 15 right jack at 25 uh when the brain is done developing right it's it's done forming the connections in the frontal lobe so how much impact did Room have on that? So we could see Jack at 15. We could see Jack at 25 and see um, whether or not any of those latent things will come up, right? If these are going to appear as a an anxiety disorder, maybe, or uh, psychosis in some way, right? We don't really know what his prognosis is because we don't know the interplay between memory and the trauma rewiring. So, I, oh man, I wish we could see. I wish they did, uh, you know, uh, uh, an epilogue or something. But of course, that would take away from the emotional impact of the movie. So maybe not. I don't know. I'm torn. The psychologist in me wants to know. I know. I know. Me too. Um, yeah, the whole linking between, yeah, he's very young and he may not remember as much as we would think he would remember because we're thinking, oh, of course he would remember like all of the very dramatic things that we saw in the film. But as psychologists, we know 
the younger you are, the less likely you are to remember things. Like we know infantile amnesia. We yeah. know that that's a thing. Um, but we also know big T trauma affects the brain. We know that high glucocorticoid receptor areas are are really quite affected yeah. by trauma. Uh, we know the limbic system. We know the prefrontal cortex. We know all of those things. Like that is heavily steeped in research. And so I would be very interested in seeing, does Jack go on to develop some form of psychopathology? I mm -hmm. would be very interested in that, especially knowing that we already kind of see that in Joy a little bit. I know that that's kind of encroaching on Joy's trauma a little bit, but we know that that has a strong biological connection. Mm -hmm. And the uh, trauma that she was under both mentally and physically at his conception, his gestation, exactly. and his birth is also going to play a role in his biology, right? Good old genetics, but then also epigenetics. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Prenatal stress is a huge predictor of a lot of psychopathology. Right. And so yeah. even if it's not affecting Jack now, it could be affecting him, you know, decades down the road. That's kind of, it's really cool when we start thinking about the interplay between environment and genetics, but it's also, it's kind of scary to think about as well. Um, that's kind of why I I hate saying this, but like, I, I love talking about trauma. Like I, I hate that we have to talk about it, Yeah. but I, I think that this is just a, a very fascinating field because there is so much interplay between all of these different topics mm -hmm. that we get to, we get to talk about. Yeah. And, and, uh, while it's hard to know what's going to happen to Jack because of prenatal stress and, uh, although he had a relatively well-adjusted five years uh, five years of his life. I think he is in, as you said at the start, he is, his prognosis is good regardless of his um, maybe future psychopathology because he is a known case, right? Yes. He's going to have a team of, of doctors. He's going to have help all throughout his life and and we know that that kind of social support not just from his loved ones and family ma his grandma and everyone and leo <laughs> gotta gotta put leo in there seamus 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 of course <laughs> uh seamus is the dog for those of you who don't know um he's gonna have a lot of help and and that's gonna impact his recovery it's if he ends up in like you know a, a, some side of psychosis or something it's gonna help his recovery um if uh you know he ends up with a debilitating anxiety disorder you know he's gonna have that team around him to assist with that behavioral cognitive therapy all of that he's a known case a lot of the issues that we see in in clinical psychopathology is that people are unaware of their family history or epigenetics associated with their ancestors. And so they don't know that maybe schizophrenia runs in their family, which is, you know, a heavy, heavily genetic. And so they end mm -hmm. up having their first psychotic episode and, and don't think anything of it. They don't do anything about it. And then they and get so worse now... and they get worse and they get worse. And so these people uh -huh. tend to fall through the cracks, but Jack would hopefully not fall through the cracks because he is a known case. Yeah, I would I would hope that 
with Jack, even if it's not him, a loved one would know something starts to show up in him or he starts feeling a little not quite like himself or just something goes awry with how he's feeling, that's already kind of signaling something. It's yeah. not it, not trying to say that he's like a, a psychologist or like he's any sort of that means, but like he's already going to somehow be introduced to the mental health care system. Yeah. And so he's already going to have that connection. And so he's already going to see, okay, well, I I need to I need to get a checkup or something like a mental health care checkup. Yeah. Um fingers so that, crossed that that happens. Yeah. I'm I would be hopeful. I would hope that that is what would happen with Jack. Sometimes I miss it. Wasn't it awfully small? Uh-uh. It went every direction all the way to the end. It never finished. And Ma was always there. But it was smaller in wardrobe. Hmm? What did you do in wardrobe? Sleep. When old Nick came. I want to see Ma. Yeah, I know. She's, um... She just needs to be on her own for a little while. Jack? Someone here would like to meet you. Jack. Here, let me get this for you. Come on. Let's go see. Jack? Meet Seamus. Would you like to pet him? So let's transition here to some of the more palatable... I've left this to the end, so if, you, if you've listened to us through this and you're just like, I can't deal with this next bit of discussion, then you can skip to the end. See? See, that's, that's, that's how we do it in the biz. That's post-production, baby. And pre-production, I guess. <laughs> so, Joy. Ma. She has the most palatable, visceral trauma that we see so explain uh to the listeners chelsea what kinds of signs that in the movie that speak to joy's trauma well there's a lot um yeah right at the beginning of the film one thing that it isn't the biggest thing that you see but one that really stuck out to me was you just see this very blank, like flat affect on her face. You see this very like distant, like thousand yard stare mm -hmm. on her face. Not necessarily when she's engaging with Jack, but it's always when he's focused on something and she's kind of watching him. So yeah. you kind of see this very just she's kind of barely having it together. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like a very minor sign, but it's one that you see right off the bat, like within a couple of minutes of the film, if not a couple of seconds. Mm -hmm. Something that you see in Jack's point of view, you see in, uh, I forget like how far in the film it is, but 
uh, one day Jack wakes up and he tries to wake up his mom. He tries to wake up Ma and he's kind of noticing like she's not getting out of bed. Mm -hmm. And so he gets up and he's kind of occupying himself. He makes breakfast. He just kind of hangs out and you hear the, uh, like over like the him like narrating mm-hmm. and he's like oh like ma's having a gone day mm-hmm. and so those of us in psych we were kind of like oh well that's kind of like a clear sign of depression mm-hmm. right and so that's all happening in room and then after the rescue of ma and jack that's where we really see the complexity of ma's reaction to all of the trauma that she's experienced. Like we see a lot of the very deep set depression that Mm -hmm. she's experiencing in room, but it's like, as soon as they get rescued, it becomes a lot more complex. Like, of course she's relieved to be out of that situation, Mm -hmm. but it's like now she's really coming to grips with what all she really experienced in room. Yeah. So now she's dealing with the the depression. She has a lot of anger. She has a lot of guilt. Mm -hmm. And so she has anger. Like she, uh, she's very angry at her father Mm -hmm. for not even looking at Jack. Right. Um, she's angry looking through old pictures from when she was in high school. She's sitting in her old bedroom with Jack and she's like, uh, showing Jack a picture and she's naming some of her old friends. And mm-hmm. she says, you know what happened to them? Nothing. They lived their life and nothing happened. And she kind of slams the book and she shuts the box or, or whatever she did. Mm-hmm. It's like, she's angry. She's like, nothing happened to them, but something happened to me. And I'm, I'm like really pissed about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she's really angry at her mom for mm-hmm. suggesting that she rests. And she's like, I've done nothing but rest. And um, her mom insinuates like she needs to be nice. And um, she has the quote, I'm sorry, I'm not nice anymore. But maybe if your voice saying be nice hadn't been in my head, then maybe I wouldn't have helped the guy with the sick, the sick dog. Yeah. So let's so remind, she- let's remind everyone that she was uh, a captive for seven years, two years by herself. She was a um, teenager when she was abducted, um, and uh, and that's because old Nick came up to her and said, "Oh, can you help me? My my, my dog is sick." Um, and it turns out that there was no dog. Right? Can't have a sick dog if you don't have a dog. Um, and he immediately tossed her into this room. And of course, if this room was like this, and he knew what was gonna what 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 was happening in this room, what he was going to do with this room, putting up all of the sound uh, absorbers and the magnetic door lock with a code that only he knew. He probably did this to other girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Joy, she's she's mad at her mother. Mm-hmm. For and this kind of nice rightfully so. Head. And it's like you can see the look of guilt on her mom's face. And I can only imagine what it's like to be the mother in that situation and being like, I mean, telling your child to be nice isn't a bad message. I mean, any decent parent would be like, yeah, you should be a nice person. Yeah, yeah. 
But be knowing that that messaging ended up having your child be being taken from you for seven years. This this movie, um, I'm gonna say it is a uh, a love letter to Stranger Danger. Uh huh. I'm on the record for that. You can put that to print. This is a love letter from Emma Donahue to Stranger Danger. You grew up with Stranger Danger, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I, <laughs> I did. Be nice, but strangers are not to be trusted. Be nice, but from a distance. Exactly. You can say, hi, how are you doing? And know I'm how to throw a way. punch. Know how to throw a right hook. Exactly. Yeah. Be able to knock someone down. Although, um, this is what I'm going to teach my children Always aim for the nuts. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> Not only does it hurt, I can speak from experience, <laughs> but. <laughs> Is there something you would like to share? <laughs> but that's what one of the first things they teach you in Krav Maga, which is Israeli self-defense, yeah. um, is uh, the front kick to the nards. Yeah. Mm hmm. That's what they teach. It, it, I, and I'm not I'm not joking about that. That was the first thing I learned in a mix, you know, a co-ed Israeli self-defense class is front kick straight up. It's it's a tr this is and and this is true. I'm I'm showing Chelsea this through our videos. Um, My 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 Krav Maga master was like, it is a triangle. And if you hit any sides of the triangle on the way up, it's you, you, all you have to do is have that enough thrust from your hip, and it will find its target regardless. Good it's to like, know. It's like a, it's like the, it's like, it's like if ski ball like came to a triangle, right? <laughs> and the ball is bouncing off the sides. It's she's laughing, but it's true. It comes to a point. Always kick there, right? You don't even need to learn how to throw a punch because sometimes punches hurt. Uh, I also know this from experience. Um, <laughs> you can break your hand if you punch somebody in the face. You, you it, it is unlikely you will break your foot in somebody's crotch. Just saying. Anyways, love, love, love letter to Stranger Danger. This is what happens when I'm uncomfortable. Okay. I think now, you're very uncomfortable. <laughs> that, that was that was a that was a comedy routine right there. That was that was a stand up bit. What, Ski ball to the nards. Ski okay. ball. Yep. Your foot is the ball, and then it hits the ball. The analogy is lost, but it's a triangle. That's all, that's all you need to remember. Your your legs form a triangle. Okay. <laughs> all right. So back to the serious stuff. Um. So back to drama. Yeah. So. Joy has this really gnarly interview after being pushed into it, by the way, like her lawyer. Everybody is like, you should do this. There'll be money in it because, you know, I'm not working pro bono for you anymore. I of was like, not. oh, Why my God, at least somebody set up a fund. Where's GoFundMe? They should have they should. If this was really America in this movie. OK, maybe another stand up bit. This was really America in this movie. There would have been a GoFundMe, and they would have made hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, uh, thank you for agreeing with me because that is exactly how we handle stuff in this country. You don't get help from any organizations or anything like that. No, it's we we survive with the 
subsistence of strangers. But of course, they are being strangers from a distance, right? <laughs> we love a good GoFundMe mm. and being wary of strangers from a distance. So they, she has to do this interview to get the cash to afford the doctors, to afford the lawyers. Um, and uh, like afford the lawyers, like what are you going to do? Sue the guy? Dude was house being foreclosed on. So what do you need a lawyer for? Um, you're not the you're not the plaintiff in a civil case. This is the state of wherever they're in versus old Nick. He committed point. crimes. Anyways, uh, I've, there's a lot of inconsistencies in this movie that I just when I think about them, I'm like, wait, that how would make we any get sense. the powerful plot point without the needing the money and the lawyer? That's true. Yeah, I suppose that's the case. Uh, wow. As if old Nick would stand up in the middle of the courtroom and being like, I demand shared custody. What? <laughs> I mean, it is America. Yeah, I mean, he probably would. But like any <laughs> if a judge was like, you know what? He makes a good case. He is the biological father. He of did this bring kid. them nice things every Sunday. Oh, yeah. He brought, you know, he got he got Jack a, a RC car for his fifth birthday. Oh, my God. I demand shared custody. He I was demand visitation in prison. He must come see me every Sunday. I am his father. Anyways, so she has to go on to this interview, and the interviewer is like, so are you a bad mom or the worst mom? <laughs> I like how you're not even that extreme about you're not even that wrong about the question that <laughs> right I, i'm not listener if you have not seen the movie that is pretty close <laughs> that is my stephen colbert impression of this interviewer asking ma joy these questions and so now all jokes aside it's a pretty tough interview to watch um as an audience member it's a tough interview for Joy herself, um, and it's a and and uh, um, Grandma Joan Allen is sobbing in the background at, at at these questions because not only is she watching her daughter get like um, uh, scarlet lettered and and uh, tomatoed uh, in front of her, she's also the mother of the person who was abducted. And so she's she's having to to relive that her own trauma. Right. And so it's a bad time all around. And I don't care if the interviewer is like, oh, no, this is your interview. You just say I'm not comfortable and I don't want to answer that question. Uh, totally came in there. It felt like I was watching a Fox News interview mm -hmm. I, of Joe Biden. Like, I got you, buddy. And so, you know. Something bad happens. What happens, Chelsea? Joy is obviously not doing well, as you can imagine. You know, you go through all of this really horrible stuff. And thanks to the son, who the interviewer was basically asking, you know, why didn't you do the quote unquote correct thing and uh, have your captors take him to the hospital? Um, she takes a 
presumably a lot of or all of the sleeping medication Mm -hmm. that the doctor prescribed her in um, a suicide attempt. And Jack ends up finding her. And when Jack finds her, he's obviously very scared. The whole house ends up witnessing this. Jack uh, is like screaming. Grandma and grandpa end up finding Joy. Uh, She, uh, 911 ends up being called. Uh, It's a a very big, scary, traumatic ordeal for everybody. Yeah, it really is. And the good news is Joy makes a recovery. And one great scene that... Uh, I I really loved was that um, one thing that we didn't mention during the development segment was that Jack believed that his hair, which is very long, had his strong in it. And of course, again, we're talking about like nouns or or, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, verbs or adjectives that are used as nouns. Right. Um, And so. He he finally acquiesces to grandma, who apparently has this like gender vendetta uh, against boys with long hair. Um, I don't know how long I've been waiting for you to say that. Oh, my God. It's like, geez, lady, give it a rest. Uh, boys can have long hair, too. So she helps him cut it off. And um, grandma brings it to Joy in the hospital. Uh, I'm assuming that. um. Joy was put on some kind of hold after her attempt uh, to uh, some some involuntary hold. Uh, most most states in the country have uh, like a 72 hour involuntary hold after either an attempt um, or suspicion of an attempt. Um, like like almost like, like a very heavy contemplation, I guess. Uh, and so she was probably on that and grandma brings her the, the strong and, and joy brings it out later and, and says, you know, I, 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 it made me really happy that you gave me your strong, um, because I think it did help me, um, get better or start to get better. That was out of all of the scenes in this film that. That was a, a an ugly crying scene for me. Yeah, yeah. Same. That, something about that just it just got to me. Yeah. Like the the whole and it was all Jack's idea. Like it wasn't grandma's insistent uh like snide comments about his long hair. It was him saying, um, Ma needs his strong more than him. Yeah. It's like just right in the feels right in the feels yeah and and she i think in, in that moment she recognized that she to herself made the right choice about uh, raising jack in in room with her and i think that brings uh some some closure to the guilt that she was feeling, the shame that she was feeling, and of course the the added shame from the interviewer and what people might think of her watching that interview, you know, on on uh, Good Morning America or whatever. 
uh, mm-hmm. and then or sixty minutes, you know, one of those things. And so, really, sort of sweeping away that shame of that decision and and just living with that decision because she raised, for all intents and purposes, a very kind boy. And honestly, yeah, Jack, I would say parents all over the world really just want to raise just kind people. Jack is, uh, he's just a great kid all around. Um, I feel like any person would be lucky to have a kid like Jack. I know that the circumstances in which he came into being were not great. They weren't good. They were horrible. Um, but I know that in the interview before the train wreck, like before the train went completely off the rails, um, when the interviewer was talking about like, oh, will you tell Jack about his father? And uh, Joy slash Ma was saying, no, he's he's mine. He's only mine. Um, it's like she was very proud of him. And I think she's rightfully so. Like, she's very proud of him. And I I think that she has very good reason to be proud of him. Like, he's he's a yeah. wonderful kid. Yeah. And I think um, one thing that we can say, as we were saying with, with, with Jack's prognosis, I think um, the note that we leave this film on is one of hope for both of them. Mm-hmm. But in Joy's case, it is um, one that I think she is willing, an, an effort that she is willing to undertake. Like, she's not going to be like, nah, nah, I don't need ther- therapy. Leave me, you know, miss me with that therapy. I think she's going to engage with it a lot more. She's She recognizes after her suicide attempt that 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 she has this little boy to live for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole she needs my strong was probably the icing on the cake to to bring the metaphor to the very beginning of the film, making the birthday cake with him. So I think she was like, yep, I have my reason now. I have I have my purpose and my purpose not only was to raise this little boy under the most dire of circumstances, but then to see him flourish. Absolutely. I think that that captures it perfectly. And um, I think I'm going to end with a clip here, which is the last clip of Jacob, Jacob, Tremblay, (laughs) of Jack. Uh, I wonder if they named him Jack because it was easier for a kid named Jacob to remember. No, I I think that's his name in the book. Um, Anyways, uh, they, they go back to the... Uh, scene of the crime, of course, room. And uh, I'll leave I'll leave you audience with this clip and then we'll come back for the end of the episode. But one thing that you won't get in audio is what Brie Larson does at the end here where she um, mouths by room can you probably won't be able to hear it. Unfortunately, even if I like raise the audio, she Barely whispers it. Is this room? Yeah. Has it gotten shrinked? 
Where is everything? Taken for evidence. Proof that we were here. Because doors open. What? It can't really be room if doors open. Do you want me to close it? Nah. Jack, can we go? I want to thank Dr. Chelsea Robertson for joining me to discuss Room and Skylight. Uh, before we say goodbye, Chelsea, is there anything that you would like to plug? Where can folks find more about your work? Yeah, I would like to uh, give a shout out to the East Tennessee State University Strong Brain Institute. Excellent. Um, that is my alma mater for my graduate program. Um, they are a really great group of people who are all about uh, talking about trauma-informed care, uh, really informing people about trauma, informing people about how we can ameliorate the effects of trauma at all age groups. Um, if you are interested in learning more about trauma, learning more about what you can do to help people with trauma, I encourage you to Google the East Tennessee Strong Brain Institute. They have a couple of free trainings that you can do online. Um, I strongly suggest that you go and check them out. Excellent. Um, I will link that in the show notes for those of you who'd like to take a, a look at that. Uh, so thanks again for joining me, Chelsea. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. And that's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one, thanks for listening.